Hello and welcome back, La Liga fans. This is the Total Football Analysis La Liga podcast. I'm your host, professional soccer player Alex Comsia. Excited to once again be joined by El Profesor Chris Mumford. How are you doing, Chris? Fabuloso. And of course, our expert analyst, Scott Martin. How are you doing, Scott? Oh man, recovering from that crazy weekend in La Liga and really Europe as a whole. Definitely. There was a lot of drama this past week, as you mentioned, Scott. Who would have predicted Real Madrid, Sevilla, and FC Barcelona would drop points and all take L's from Cadiz, Granada, and Getafe? This shot Real Sociedad and Villarreal up to the number one and two spots. But of course, we're still in early days and they do have a game in hand on some other teams. Luis Suarez is looking like he's enjoying life once again in the capital, playing for Atletico Madrid. He got got himself on the score sheet once again. And gentlemen, Spanish football is heating up and it seems to be quite competitive as just one point separates first place Real Sociedad from sixth place, Granada. Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, and Sevilla find themselves in eighth, ninth, and tenth place, respectively. Chris, Scott, are these early signs of a more competitive season than in previous years? I want to believe that to be. I'm praying to the soccer gods that that's the case because we're seeing it across several several leagues, right? We're seeing that in Serie A. We're seeing that in, in, in the Premier League. Uh, well, you know, there, there's, there's no hope for, uh, for Ligue 1, but, uh, but in terms of the others, yeah. And it's just the mojo is bonkers right now. What is going on? Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm excited because you know me. I'm a big fan, parody, 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 and that, that doesn't exist most of the time. Yeah, and when you look across the big leagues, uh, you know most of the major teams were playing in the Champions League just a couple months ago, so they had to take that late that late vacation, and then they had that shortened preseason. So you can make the case that they're at a little bit of a disadvantage, or or I guess you know maybe the playing fields are level now. So you know we see some uh, we've seen some surprising results, and uh, three of them right away in La Liga this weekend. Holy smokes! Definitely. And one of the great stories here is Real Sociedad taking that number one spot. I'm not sure if we could have predicted this. They're obviously a very good team. But, you know, number one, that's significant. And, you know, they've played six matches. So, again, early days. We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. But, Chris, what's so impressive about Real Sociedad here? Are they legitimate contenders for top four in Champions League? I desperately want them to be. I think, uh, as you said, it's a little bit too early. Um, they had a, a signature when they beat Hatafe 3-0. Uh, you know, I, I think there, there's something to be said about going um, nil-nil against Real Madrid. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's some nice pieces there, but you think about against these other teams, uh, you know, um, uh, Betis, which has been on a nicer run, they're probably going to regress back to the mean. What I can't get over, Scott, is how did they lose against Valencia 1-0? This is the team that you pin to go down this season, Valencia. So 
that was a surprising game. Watching that one, I, I felt like Real Sociedad really should have come away with the result. And they'll probably end up kicking themselves late in the season when they think back, no loss. But look at this side. I mean, it's a really nice mix of, of veteran leadership with David Silva, Nacho Monreal. And then you've got a lot of really young talent. So, you know, we're still yet to see Alexander Isaac really hit his stride this season. But Ayarzabal has been uh, great for them on the left. Uh, Mikel Moreno is one of the best eights you're going to find in La Liga. And, you know, they've got a nice mix of players they can use on the right side, especially, uh, you know, Porto this past weekend and Yanazai when they need someone who's a little bit more direct. So this is a team that has some nice depth. Um, Aguasil's done a brilliant job with uh, this group. And, you know, they, they might just have enough to, to beat out one of those top four teams in La Liga. So they, they were very close. Going into the COVID break, there was no better team in La Liga than Real Sociedad. And, you know, I, I think they had climbed as high as third before the break. So granted, they've lost Odegaard, but this is a team that can make a run. They've got talent. They've got a great coach. Sociedad fans definitely have a lot to be excited about, Scott. Now let's switch gears to our first upset of the week. Granada beat Sevilla 1-0. The red card against Jao Jordan was obviously significant, but is there anything that stood out for you, Scott? So that red card really did doom them in the game. I think in the first half, they had something like 68% possession. Uh, it was setting up just to be a, a classic Sevilla performance, just a lot of possession, uh, dominating the wings, and you know, little success to that point with their crossing. But you could see they were picking up. So Granada had set up in uh, you know just a, a lower block, looked to counterattack. They they had some success in the first half, but I just had this feeling that Sevilla really had them right where they wanted. But then when you're done picks up the, the two yellow cards within a minute of each other. Just stupid, I mean, totally needless fouls. And, you know, the table turns. So I think for the game, Sevilla had 48% possession. And when you look at what they managed last season or what they managed in the first half of this match, uh, it, it forced them to totally disregard their, their playing philosophy and they really just never had a chance in that second half of Granada, to their credit, they really piled up the pressure and came away with the deserved win. Do you think it was a mistake not to start uh, Luke De Jong up top as a number nine? Yeah. So, I mean, you could definitely see with the top four teams, you know, in, in anticipation of the Champions League games, that there was some rotation. Um, you know, in hindsight, sure, yeah, you know, you're going to have more success in the crosses. Uh, and especially when you look at Granada, they're pretty good at defending crosses as well. Uh, they've got Domingo Stuart, who's recently had his call-up to the Portuguese national team. So he's really an up-and-coming player, really starting to hit his stride uh, at the midpoint in his career. But yeah, I think De Jong gives him that little bit of an extra edge. You know, I would, I would look, at, look at Sevilla. I, I know that they got the knock that they got. But they're pretty healthy, right? They've they've only got two people on on that are injured, and if you look at their um, schedule coming up, you look at Chelsea two times 
uh, more or less in the next month. That's going to be a lot. But you think about their home fixtures or home league fixtures or Ibar, Athletic Club, Osasuna, uh, and Celta Vigo. It's really, uh, and then Huesca. And they're not really going to have some heavier talent that they're going to be competing against until December 6th against Real Madrid. So I would say that the the uh, scheduling gods were kind to Sevilla uh, for this time. Uh, so I kind of like, I think they're going to go on a nice little run. Uh, and while as yet some of their uh, top three or four competitors are going to have some real work ahead of them in the coming month or so. Alex, let me ask you as, as a player, if you do get that nice run of games, uh, that help from the league with the scheduling and you're able to build up some momentum, uh, you know, what kind of psychological advantage does that have going into, you know, these matches against top teams? It's interesting because um, if if you're a player, and I've said this before, you ideally approach every game similarly in your mindset. Ideally. Now, now at the top level, um, I don't think that happens necessarily as much. I think... With their schedule, they will, as Chris was saying, they will be looking at it and saying, this isn't terrible. This isn't so bad. You know, there are games where we can slip up here. Obviously, the Chelsea game is going to be massive. The two games are going to be massive as well. But in La Liga, you know, they can really go on a run here. This is one slip up. And I think they'll be kicking themselves significantly at this slip up because this is where their competitors in Real Madrid and Barcelona slipped up. So as as a player, I'm thinking, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid haven't seemed to be at their best. We've got a really good squad. We've got we won the Europa League. We have a lot of talent that we brought back from last year. Plus, we've added Rakitic. And I still I mentioned this last week. I still think that's a big, big addition that hasn't yet, you know, really flourished and showed what he can do for this Sevilla side. I think it's a it's a massive um, booster from a player's mentality and yeah again they'll approach it as one game at a time but knowing that if they can get on that good two three game win streak they can really do some damage this year so moving on now to the celta vigo atletico madrid game where atletico madrid won two zero the the fun thing for us to discuss will be the two bullies up top in Costa and Suarez. Scott, I know we mentioned there's some evil energy in there and it seems to cause problems from the other team's defense. Yeah, and you know, the big thing for me, when you look at the timing, the when the starting lineups were released, it's right about the time Sevilla gave up their goal against Granada. Barcelona and Real Madrid followed with uh, shocking losses. And then, you know, in the EPL, if you want to extend that far, you've got the uh, the two big Liverpool injuries. So, like, I, I'm not saying Costa and Suarez caused all this chaos in the universe, but I'm not saying they didn't. Yeah. I think that's significant. So, yeah, just way too much chaos in one day. But, I mean, Chris, this is exactly what wanted. You've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, it's just nice if if you're going to have to fight evil. It's nice that they're all on one Death Star, 
right? Um, and so what I can't get over is, you know, Celta Vigo played their game. You know, they played, they had a majority of possession, which is not a surprise. 45% was Atletico Madrid. Uh, expected goals of 1.8 for Celta Vigo versus 1.4 for Atletico Madrid. And you only had, you had 14 shots, Celta Vigo, five on target. Atletico Madrid, your typical anemic nine shots, total four on goal, but two of them score. Go figure, right? And I got to tell you, both of those goals were very easy on the eye. Some really intricate touches. And I just think that Jao Felix is, it's, those strikers got to be happy that they got a, a guy serving them up like that. It just, it's going to make their so-called retirement or years, you know, sunset years, a whole lot funner. Um, Scott, what, what, what did you think about those combos? Oh, the, uh, the Joao Felix goal in the second half, yeah, right at the end of the game, that was really pretty. So, you know, picks up the foul, restarts play quickly, uh, flicks it beyond the Granada the defense, gets the ball back, uh, beats a defender, and then hammers the ball at the back post. So really unlucky not to get a goal. Um, you know, it's one of those where if he does score, start talking like, is this in the, uh, the Puskas awards uh, shortlist? Like, it was that nice a goal. So, uh, but yeah, you look at the, the overall course of the game. Um, I think this is why Atletico Madrid brought they needed someone who could finish off their play from wide. And he's very creative, very clever in the box. So, you know, right away, they're, they're reaping in the And, um, you know, you just get the sense that as this year progresses, if Costa and Suarez can manage the top, mix in underneath them, this could be a pretty lethal uh, season for the two forwards. Right, and I'm just thinking of it as a, as a defender. From a defender's perspective, I'm playing against this Atletico Madrid side. And, you know, immediately my mentality goes, okay, Costa, Suarez are starting up top. It's going to be a really physical matchup. We're going to have to be touch tight, but not too tight to the point where they can just spin us. We're going to have to have excellent cover from the weak side center back and the other side fullback as well because we're going to do a lot of stepping because we do not want these guys turning because they will shoot. And they, they can shoot very, very well. Now you get into that mentality for 60 minutes. And then they sub on a guy like Jao Felix, like Carrasco, like Llorente. Players that are completely different in style compared to these two strikers up top. It gives this whole different dimension to this Atletico Madrid side. To where I'm, I'm getting caught in the mentality of you know, getting really physical with these two strikers that are more than capable of you know, technically outdoing you, I, I have to switch my mentality as a defender if they're going to bring up Felix or Carrasco really up high because if I get too tight, I'm going to get spun and done. So like I said, really, really exciting days for Atletico Madrid, not just in their starting two or one, whoever's up top, but in the substitutions that are going to continue to make in that area. I'm, I do want to bring up one point, though, is Oblak was the man of the match. He had exactly. five saves. And, you know, if he does only half as good of a job as he did, you know, then we're talking about a tied match or a 3-2 loss. So very, very nice for 
you know, for let's let's pay attention to the the drama up front. But Oblak is taking biz- care of business uh, in the back, where there were you know there were a f- there's a lot of work by the defenders, and 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 Oblak was able to sweep up. Yeah, were you guys watching that game? Were you surprised by how open it was? I mean, typically when you watch Atletico Madrid, they keep it pretty tight at the back, but uh, you know, especially yeah. the shoulders of the two center backs. Seemed like there was a lot of space. Yeah, it was uncharacteristic. Um, I do not expect that to happen. You know, in the the next few games for Atletico, especially in this next game coming up, I really expect them to start locking it down more. I think they're maybe, like you said, they're playing too much on their you know attacking ability, and maybe honestly they're playing too much on Oblak's ability, Chris. So on the extremes there on both sides, and they're not having that same, you know, compact line we're so used to um, within the last few years. I think that needs to get you know sorted out in training right away because if they can add that another dimension, which is very characteristic of who they are as a team, to this already exceptionally talented side, I think it makes them a legitimate title contender. I, I got to tell you, I'm going to be really curious to see what Simeone does because I think if you got the talent up up high, you go ahead and use it. And I just feel like there's plenty of creativity. You got you more or less have two great one-touch finishers, right? I mean, it's like, have at it. Let's go to town on this and maybe we loosen things up. Because I, I, I'm seeing you're seeing Pep modify the his tactics a little bit. You're seeing Klopp do the same thing. Is it time for Diego Simeone to to maybe start start recognizing the talent you have and and maybe adjusting for that? I don't know. I know that sounds almost like heresy for the Athletic fans, but you know. I, Simeone might be getting a little bored with, with things a little bit, right? And just change things up. So time will tell on that front. So Scott, um, we obviously talked about Thomas Partey parting, you know, this team. Lucas Torreira comes into the lineup. Do you think he's a player that's going to be successful in this Atletico Madrid squad? He better. <laughs> I mean, if he doesn't, I, this, uh, this side will continue to show that leaky quality. So when you look at the way Atletico played last year, Partey was the midfield destroyer. He gave that back line so much coverage that they could afford to be a little bit more aggressive on the wings, uh, especially on that left-hand side with Renan Lodi, who is another guy that we need to uh, eventually have a conversation about if the performances don't pick up. But, uh, you know, looking at the middle of the pitch, you know, we talked about it last week. Don't think they have any one player who can single-handedly replace Partey. But, you know, it, it, they have Oblak. They have Jimenez, who's one of the best center backs in the world. So if they can keep two guys, two center midfielders, just in front of those two center backs, give them that nice little uh, square rest defense as they progress up the pitch, why not take some chances? Why not have some fun? You know, I want to I want to jump in. We do need to put a little asterisk by they do have some injuries, right? I mean, they've got Jimenez, Sal, love him or or not, we've got Lodi as well. 
Diego Costa just went on uh, the injured list. So they're going to have a little bit of work ahead of them uh, in terms of managing that, uh, while as yet folks we've talked about so far haven't had to deal confront those issues as much. Uh, and the folks they're going to play, you know, obviously is they're going to have to play that that team called Bayern Munich, right? I, I understand they're pretty good uh, ball players, right? They're going to have Betise, RB Salzburg, which is always a tough out, uh, Osasuna, um, and then they're playing Lokomotiv Moscow, Cadiz, uh, and then they have Barcelona on November 22nd. So, again, it seems like they've got a little bit of respite in the domestic league, um, but they're going to have um, their hands full when it comes to Champions League in the up, upcoming weeks. Definitely. Uh, the second upset was Real Madrid falling to Cadiz, 0-1. to one. Um, That first, Ramos is a talking point here, definitely, as he usually is with us. Now, that how he started the game was, was exceptional. He had that goal line clearance against Negredo. Unreal. One of those highlight videos that gets you going as a defender. It certainly got me going. But then if you look at that goal they gave up, I really believe that it was actually Ramos's error that led to the Antin Lozano goal. Ramos doesn't drop with the initial runner when he sees that the ball is getting played long, Varane drops. So half the line drops, half the line doesn't with Ramos and I believe Marcelo, who didn't really drop as well. Um, and then that allows, yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> that allows uh, Lozano to get in behind Ramos's space. And, and from that point on, he, he's chasing his own goal. Later on, he, get, he got injured. Um, so that's an area of, of concern potentially for, for Real Madrid uh, at halftime. I thought the decision to play Lucas Vasquez was debatable. Uh, I'm not sure. Zidane made a ton of substitutions in the game, you know, as you'll definitely talk about, Scott. But is this a game where Zidane got it wrong? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, this was a pretty classic trap game. And, you know, we talked last week, this Cadiz side, they're very strong defensively. They will be very direct when they attack. Um, they do have a very good counterattack. And, um, you know, quite frankly, by the time they got that goal in the 16th minute, it, they had five or six great opportunities by then. I mean, this game could have been over in Cadiz's favor within 16 minutes. I was shocked. Um, so, you know, they, they're a good side, but... The, the, yeah, <laughs> I think that just goes to show how big an issue Zidane had with his starting 11. So, you know, on the, the goal that Cadiz did score, you do have Ramos stepping into the midfield, but who's missing? Casemiro. Casemiro. And in his place, you've got uh, three attacking players, attack first players in the midfield. So they weren't prepared to defend against counterattacks. When the center backs needed some help, you know, 10 yards in front of me, there was no one there. If you look at the average starting positions for this Real Madrid midfield, the starting positions from the, the center backs to Cruz and Modric is almost 20 yards. And then you factor in where Casemiro's average starting position came, uh, was when he came in, it was about 10 yards from the center backs. So that's a massive difference. And you know, if you're going to have Kroos and Modric as your two deep players, 
you're uh, you're gonna pay because neither of them is great defensively. You know, Kroos is good when he's paired up with Casemiro. Has to pr- patrol you know twenty yards with, so Casemiro makes his defensive work a little bit easier. Um, so I think they really got it wrong in the midfield, and it's no surprise that Zidane made four halftime substitutions. Uh, but then the other area, I thought he really got it wrong at right back. So Nacho went up and down the field all match, which I don't understand. He's not proficient in the attack. I don't know why he wasn't more of a stay-at-home center back. And then you get Marcelo situated higher up the pitch. But then why have Nacho and Vasquez on the same side? You've effectively killed your attack on that right-hand side. And I think when you look at their XG from you know the three vertical thirds of the, the pitch, it's like 0.1 or 0.01 from the, uh, the right-hand side. So they had no attacking threat there. So that allowed Cadiz to just slide everybody to the left, try and overload, uh, deny space to Venetius Jr. and Marcelo, and it worked. And then they could counterattack behind Marcelo. So, yeah, I mean, tactics were totally wrong. It almost seemed like this was just a way to, to rotate the squad, try and keep everybody happy, give guys like Nacho and Lucas Vasquez some minutes, you know, because they are good club people, but cost them three points. So I got to tell you, this, this is kind of a questions will be asked, and maybe this is just a nominally here, right? I mean, how does a team possess 75% of the time and take 14 shots, only of which one is on target, right? And then the other team takes 12 shots, of which five are on target. You would think I'd be saying the five shots on target were done by Real Madrid, but no, it's the one shot on target by Real Madrid. And you're telling me that they have weakness on the right side, their first and second string on defense. That, that is worrisome to me, especially in light of the fact that you want to talk about how, it, how fairly easy it is for the other teams. These guys have Shakhtar um, coming up shortly. Probably not a huge, difficult match, but they have that team called Barcelona coming up on Saturday. And then they got Martin Gladbach uh, right after that. Uh, And then they're going to have Inter Milan after that. And then they've got Valencia Villarreal. And then they've got Inter again. uh, And then they kind of have a sigh of of breath in Alaves. But that's... I'm just talking about November. I'm talking about the next you know, four weeks or so or five weeks uh, where they're going to have a lot of work ahead of them and they, they've got a clearly clearly defined weakness and they're not firing on all cylinders offensively. Um, is it that the team's getting a year older? The mo- what, Why is the mojo off here? Yeah, I, I really want to go back to Scott's point about Casemiro. I don't understand what the, what the uncertainty is uh, about him, so maybe I'm missing something because if I'm thinking about it from a def- defensive perspective, you look at a player like or players like Verona Ramos who love to be aggressive on the step, and we've talked about that before. That really makes Real Madrid and that makes them so hard to play against because they really just cl- eat up space in the middle of the park where the typical creative players love to roam around and they become super uncomfortable. Now this game, 
makes it so clear, and I'm repeating basically what you said, Scott, that Casamito is so key to, to this side because he covers that space. And that, that goal against is exactly the example of how to break down this Real Madrid defense if Casemiro is not in the side. So we ha definitely have to give credit, too, to, to Cadiz in this game. I think this is a blueprint for a lot of teams, not only in La Liga, but maybe in Champions League to look at as well. Mind you, you know, one shot on target, like Chris said, that will turn up quite a lot in the next few games. I don't expect that to stay at all. But for me, it's what are we even debating here? I think Casemiro was, even a year ago, maybe a few months ago, was this team's best player, him and him and Ramos at one point. Even before the, the quarantine and coronavirus happened, I would argue that you know, Casemiro was their most valuable player. I don't know about best player, but most valuable to how this side wants to play. So, yeah. Chris, it, it's that simple. It, this guy needs to be in the lineup, and he needs to be given 100% backing again by the manager. I don't know what are the details or what's been happening between him and Zidane, but it just seems like there's there was that, that earlier game in the, in the year where he didn't start, and, and I don't know, he hasn't – he made a, a mistake at the end of last year where he gave up the ball, and then the other team scored. I forgot who that was against as well, but – I don't know. For me, he's he's the key to this team. Yeah, this is going to sound like heresy, but I would argue that he's been their most important player for three years, and that includes Cristiano's last year at Real Madrid. So he he, he just gives so much uh, security to that defense that it, it just frees up everybody to play. So... Now, in this game, like if you're not going to start Casemiro, why not Valverde? That's my other question. I, you know, I don't know why you have two players as your two deep line playmakers. You don't need that; it's redundant, especially when you have Ramos back there as well. Um, Casemiro is just so valuable to this roster. He has to be in there. Cruz looks like he's the best the best eight to play with him. And then for me, it's, it's just a matter of finding the best right center midfielder. So if that's Modric, Valverde, and you know what? Right now, I think it is Valverde because they have nothing on the right-hand side. Uh, with Carvajal and uh, Odriozola out, and then you look at, you know, Lucas Vasquez hasn't been effective. Rodrigo is such a streaky player. I think you need something more on that right-hand side. So whether you play Valverde as a right forward or maybe have him as that right side of midfield to then overlap a player like you know, Isco or Rodrigo, I think that's their best bet. But they, they have to fix this right-hand side sooner right. uh, rather than later. I think something that's interesting too um, is Barcelona and Real Madrid are both struggling to define who their front three is. Yeah. I think that's a – big point for me as well is I don't know besides Benzema who is Real Madrid's front three they're struggling with that identity Barcelona who we're going to get into in a minute is also struggling with that identity as well and when, when things get too fluid at, at a certain point and there's no stability and there's no structure it, it it becomes a little chaotic and I think we're we're seeing that that balance between the chaos and order 
within the creative side of the front three has been a challenge for Madrid and Barcelona this season. Well, let me let me cheer, cheer you up, Scott. Let me tell the positive narr- narrative here. Um, Odrozola is scheduled to come back in the next uh, few days. Could be back in the lineup uh, by the weekend. Uh, and then there's that guy, um, Hazard, uh, that's supposed to be uh, scheduled to kind of come back at the end of the month. Um, that's what my sources tell me. I don't... I don't know if that's going to be the Chelsea Hazard or the Real Madrid Hazard, right? And I'm hoping for the league uh, more, as much as for Real Madrid that the Hazard, the Hazard of old comes back. So I do think to kind of get to your to your point, Alex, defining that front three, a healthy Hazard is going to be able to really light things up a little bit. And um, so – Let's kind of see where that goes. And we're, we're talking about 10 days, and he's not going to immediately light the world on fire, give him a two- or three-week runway, just like Aguero looked solid out there for Man City. But you got to give these superstars a little runway to kind of get back to where they are, with fingers crossed. Good point. The last upset of the weekend, or the last upset for the big, big teams, was Hitafe beating Barcelona by a score of 1-0. to zero. And Scott, I thought you did a great job last week of previewing how this match would look, as well as you know, going into the details of how Hitafe played. I think it was a lot of what we expected. Um, the only good news here for Barcelona is that, in my opinion, they win the award for the ugliest kit combination in La Liga so far this year. Oh, hands down. I, hands hands down, down, hated those the green. I don't mind the pink jerseys. I think those are nice. I'm talking about the green socks and shorts. Those are, those are off for me. Yeah, but maybe they're into the the bright colors. It didn't work out this time. Good news for for American fans at home. Sergino Des started uh, at that left back position. I believe his best position though is at that right back spot, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he looked decent. It's a lot of the same, though, of what we're seeing from from Barcelona um, in terms of last year in this particular game. This game reminded me completely of how they played in some of their not-so-great times in in that last season. Uh, there were questionable decisions from, from Koeman. Um, that De Jong foul against Gene. I'd love to get your guys' take on that because I just don't know if I can definitively say if that's a foul or not because De Jong looks like he, he's standing him up and Jenny kind of backs up into him and falls. And I'm thinking to myself, in the middle of the field, that would probably be a foul. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think for me it's a foul just because we do see him lunge in a little bit with that foot and and – catch Gine's foot as well so yeah for a penalty kick I agree definitely a little bit on the softer side but I I think it is one that's pretty consistently given so Chris what are your thoughts um you know I I I think it was soft but uh within the realm of reason so you know unfortunately Life is unfair sometimes. Yeah. Like you said, Chris, life isn't fair. And the stats, you know, were definitely 
in favor of Barcelona. This game reminded me of that Cadiz Real Madrid game in terms of statistics, where Barcelona, you look at the stats, you, you without looking at the scoreline, you would think that this is a 3-0 game, you know, no problem. They had 73% possession. Um, they had, you know, some decent amount of chances created, six to Hitafe's, you know, five, but their big chances were only at at one. Um, Hitafe really did a great job of of making this game just physical and tough. Messi was not at his best, although he did hit the post, which was you know, quite close. I thought the bright spot was Pedri. The 17-year-old was running out of the midfield. He looks really, really good. A talent to you know, hopefully progress in this Barcelona system. Hopefully, it's you know going to continue. I don't expect him to have that starting spot going forward. But I, I look back here and I think about you know Ronald Koeman's decisions of you know how is he using Coutinho on the bench off the coming off the bench. Pjanic is still not seeing the pitch. Um, I am a big fan of Trincao. I think he could add, a, I've mentioned this before, I think he could add a lot to this Barcelona front three. Like I said earlier, Scott, we still don't know who this front three is. And man, I'm just so, <laughs> so sad for Griezmann again. Like <laughs> he had that sitter put in through on goal. He can, he can make it a game and, and he skies it. And you can just see the way he puts his hand on his head and he's, it's cursing to the to the gods like what do, what do I got to do do to get a good performance a good goal here he's really struggling and it's it's hard as a player when you're just not in the right frame of mind I'm definitely not a goal scorer but I can imagine when things aren't going your way you know that's bad momentum too we spoke about the good momentum with hopefully the Sevilla side doing better that's personal bad momentum and and it's tough because Kuman doesn't want to take him out of the lineup because that's gonna really put a nail in his coffin and he might not come back better. But maybe that's what needs to happen to make this Barcelona side better. Because in my opinion, Coutinho has to start. So I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on the front three and who that needs to be, but it's a lot of chaos and confusion there too. Yeah, I think Griezmann does need a little bit of a breather. Uh, if only for the psychological perspective. No reason he should have missed that uh, that opportunity, but you know I, I think it's just the weight of the the crest. So you know he he has been a little bit of the uh, the scapegoat during his time at Barcelona uh, with passing poor performance or each missed opportunity. That weight just gets a little bit heavier. So yeah, I mean from his perspective, um, you know it's almost. Darned if you don't, darned if you do, uh, if you keep him in the lineup. So, you know, why not give him a little bit of a breather? And I think actually for this Champions League game, it's happening as we, we record now. I think it's Messi who's up top with Coutinho under Trincao on the, the right, Fati on the left. So I think Alex, I mean, that's sounds like that's the front, we'll say front four. Absolutely. That's, that's the front four that... I've been wanting since I've started watching uh, beginning of this season. I'm also still very excited about Ricky Pooch. I don't think, you know, he's necessarily gotten that, that many opportunities. I thought he was excellent, especially in that later half of the season. 
Um, I don't know. I'm losing. But Pedri came in and did his job well. You can't have Pooj, De Jong, and Pedri in the midfield. That's just that just can't happen for the sake of of, of their defensive part of the game. I don't know how Pjanic looks, and I've already mentioned this in this in this team. I just don't see Kuman taking out Busquets and putting on a guy like Pjanic anytime soon. Although maybe that's what the team might need. Um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts too, Chris, on on Neto coming in goal. Obviously, we don't have the luxury of watching you know, the amazing Ter Stegen. Uh, who has obviously become a, a top goalkeeper. But what are your thoughts on, on Neto coming in and filling in? He had four decent saves, one goal scored on him. Um, you know, very serviceable. Uh, you know, what I, what I really worry about, though, is uh, they are going, you know, they're playing um, uh, Ferran uh, Varos today, which would right. probably be a, not a difficult match. But then they've got Real Madrid, Juventus, and then they've got Alves before Ter Stegen comes back, uh, you know, he's, comes back at the end of the month. Um, and then they've got Atletico uh, about a month from now. So their schedule, they've got a lot of work uh, ahead of them. And so without Ter Stegen, without MTT, uh, and without Jordi Alba, um, that to me feels hard um, because that's a lot of – a lot of good teams are playing against uh, in in the coming week. So you kind of have to hope that Lady Luck um, sides with them. Messi gets his full-on mojo back. Uh, and someone's going to have to contribute. And, you know, Griezmann's supposed to have been the guy, and he hasn't been the guy. And I don't know where that's going to happen, right? Uh, I feel like it's a heavy, heavy burden to put on, on onto Fati at this point. Just got to give him another year or so just to kind of really get his legs. So right. I see, you know, I went out on a limb and said that Barca was going to win win the league. And, uh, you know, they failed their first test. They lost against Hitafe. And now they've got a murderer's row in the next two or three weeks. So we're going to get a pretty good idea of, of, of can they recover, particularly in Champions League. Um, you know, they, they're going to have their hands full. So we'll see. And if I'm any other mid to bottom of the table club in La Liga, I'm looking at what Hitafe did. And, I mean, that's, that's what I'm doing against Barcelona. That's how you beat them. Um, you know, in this game, Hitafe, at one point they had a 56% pass completion rate. So for context, right about 85 is average for a game. So way below average. Even for Hitafe, that's shockingly poor. But, you know, that it was a, just a, an approach that really prioritized high-risk, high-reward play. So, you know, they were willing to send that uh, that long ball on the hopes that they could leak up, get on the end of it, uh, maybe try and force PK and Langley to defend in the wide areas where, you know, they're not the best defenders. And, you know, in the end, I don't think uh, that's that approach produced the goal. You know, they were able to get their penalty kick through other means. But what it did was 
it broke up any kind of rhythm Barcelona could hope to have. So any, any one turnover, they knew the ball was going long and they'd have to restart all over again. And when you look at the way Hitafe defended, you know, they sent four players up in the attack to go chase down the ball. The other six players were very, very disciplined to keep their shape and deny Barcelona any quick re-entries. There were no counter-attacking opportunities for Barca. So I think that is a model for, for teams when they play Barcelona and Real Madrid. And, you know, if I'm Barcelona, um, yeah, I mean, my concern is definitely, uh, you know, if teams are going to give us 72% possession much. And if we do have that much, uh, you know, how can we break down these low blocks? Going back to last year, Alex, like you said, that's not something they were comfortable doing. Right. Scott and Alex, I'd love to get your take on this. 63% of the attacks were in the middle, and oh, yeah. 37 were on the right side, and zero were on the left side. What's so, wrong with this picture here? It's, it's, it's what we've come to understand um, about this Barcelona side where they stuff stuff down the middle. It's not the worst tactic. It's really not. That's not the problem. The problem is, like Scott was saying, is if that's your solution to breaking down a low block. Because in a low block, you typically have five defenders. That means there's three across the middle that have no problem interchanging and stepping hard because they have so much cover. It's like reducing your back three that's all the way wide to a very narrow back three, which is what every center back wants. Less running, thank you. All I got to do is kick the ball out when the cross comes in. And by the way, if you're playing against Barcelona, the cross is not coming in because it's coming central. Maybe the stat of zero on the left is also also not great for Sergio Dest's um, second game on the left, but I don't think we should put that on him necessarily. Um, but yeah, it's they have the, Barcelona last year had the least crosses in the league. You know, opposite of a team like Sevilla. That's something you'd love to see them add in, just a little more element of surprise where they can go down the middle. They're going to cross early. Instead of playing, instead of winning the ball back right away and having 10 passes and waiting for their, everyone to get, be, get behind the ball, one pass, then a chip over the top for, by the way, a guy like Usman Dembele, who is, it's amazing to see him back out there because for any football fan, not just, for Barcelona fans, because he's had so many problems with injury. You know, I don't think they're utilizing a guy like him well enough, you know, or even a guy like Messi doesn't run as much anymore, but Coutinho, Griezmann, Trincao, these guys all want the ball of feet. So I don't know who on this team is necessarily stretching this bar, stretching the space um, for this Barcelona side. The last person we saw do that was Neymar. Ansu Fati at times. We can't forget Ansu Fati at times does that as well. But it's so hard to, to have the ball against a low block and try to beat a guy 1v1. Because to beat a guy 1v1, you need space in behind that guy to beat. And if there's always cover, you're never going to beat him. It's going to have to be a, a shimmy, one of those quick messy shimmies or Fati at the beginning of the year and, and shoot. But you have to make sure that you get these sides unbalanced 
not balanced. And when teams are balanced, that's where they really feel like they can take it to Barcelona with that terrible pass success rate of 58%. So, yeah, that's my, that's my opinion on that, Chris. So, Scott, wouldn't you argue or what's your take? I mean, 63% up the middle. They could kind of sort of make it work with Suarez there along with Messi. Even then it was starting to get a little rusty, right? Right. I don't – I'm a little shocked when I, when I saw those numbers. I'm like, wait a minute. How can the, a top-tier team rely so much on this? I mean, what do you think is going to have to happen? Uh, you know, I really think they need Messi to move into the middle so they can actually have two guys who can offer them a little bit of width. Uh, Messi just – he doesn't give them that, uh, that presence on the wings that they need. And we haven't really seen, you know, Sergei or Sergei Roberto is going to be a right back. You're not going to get the attacking on the right hand side that complements Messi. So that's another issue. But you know, when I when I look at this Barca side, it, it seems like every attack is either right down the middle, in which case, you know, if you're sitting in the low block, you should hopefully have like a I don't know six v four advantage right there in the middle where you can. Uh, counter them and to Alex's point there's never a true 1v1 it's 1v2 1v3 and then if that doesn't work they drop to Messi and when Messi gets the ball he either looks to draw the foul close to the box where he can use his free kick ability or he looks to play that far post cross so it has become pretty predictable for Barcelona and you know so that's where if you're not going to use Dembele's pace his willingness to run behind the line you got to go with Fatih but if you're going to go with Fati on the right-hand side or the left-hand side, what are you doing on the right-hand side? Because right now, just Barcelona plays uh, just in two channels or three channels. You know, if you've got Griezmann in the game, send those crosses early because he can go on the line. You don't want him going up against a 6'2 center back, but if you play him 10 yards behind that line, you know, maybe towards the penalty spot, that's when you give him a fighting chance. And that's very comparable to the way Atletico Madrid used him. I'm actually really in favor of that idea of, of dropping Messi more to a traditional number 10 and just having him stay in that role. Um, because when Barcelona picks up the ball and wins it back when they're out of possession, he can be the immediate outlet right away. And... His ability to pick a pass out on a dime from a deeper position in that number 10 role could be the key to unlocking more 1v1s, 2v1s, 2v2s, 3v3s higher up the field for guys like you're saying, Dembele, Fati, even Griezmann up top, which creates more imbalances. So I think it's worth trying. You know, at times it's, it's a lot of the center parts, the 62% in the center is because of Lionel Messi because he drifts into that center like you were saying, Scott. So maybe it's time for Barcelona to you know, give him a different role or at least try it out to see if that works. We'll have to wait and see. So our last game, the derby, the battle of Villarreal, Valencia. You guys called this last week, and there was no doubt about it. You said Villarreal was going to take this one, no problem. 2-1 score for Villarreal at the end of the day. Um, anything that surprised any of you two, or did it go, you know, pretty much as planned for Villarreal? That's about what I expected. 
So they're a very good side. I think when you look at the, you know, maybe the fifth, sixth, and seventh place teams that can compete, or maybe at least put pressure on those top four for a Champions League spot, Villarreal's right in the mix. So they're a fun team to watch. And if you ever want to, especially as a coach or a player even, if you want to learn a little bit more about how you can use a side effectively with uh, attacking rotations high up the pitch, this is a great side to watch. So, yeah, they're, they're going to be very competitive this year. Um, they can have consistent finishing and maintain some structure defensively. They're a side that can push for a top four finish. It's a big ask, but they've definitely got the talent and I think the, the fun tactical fluidity to do it. Anything from you, Chris, on the side of Villarreal? You know, you said Valencia was going to drop all the way to Segunda, so. <laughs> well, if they're only going to have three shots on target, 37% possession, uh, and play matches where there's a combination of 21 fouls in the game, three red cards, one red card to their defense that was on Villarreal at the very end. I mean, it's... It was an ugly game, right? And uh, it's, it is what it is. I still think Valencia is going to have to answer a lot of questions. And I agree, Villarreal, you know, could they be a Europa slot? Possibly, right? They're in the conversation. Um, a lot of games to play. Um, and we'll kind of see where things go. All right, guys. So before we preview the only important game there is coming up in La Liga, El Clasico, I wanted to take a moment to just briefly discuss what we've started to hear, this idea of a European Premier League, European Super League. So essentially, this would be almost like a Champions League style of a football league within Europe that would have teams play less games, but it would be the top four, five, or six teams from each of the the big you know the big four big five or six with a few other exceptions i imagine play against each other in this you know avengers assemble steroid of a league what do we think about this guys i think it's inevitable i mean <laughs> money talks money walks money 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 i mean it already is a, there is the haves and the have nots right and that's what happens when you don't have a salary cap. So in La Liga, you have maybe three legit teams, Sevilla, three and a half, call it. You've got PSG, and you've got the five or six uh, Premier League teams. And in Serie A, maybe you've got Juve and, and the two big Milan teams, right? You wanna, you wanna add a little charm to it, you've got Atalanta, uh, Napoli and Roma, they're, they're going to make things interesting. But let's call a spade a spade. And I really think Project Big Picture, which was proposed by Man United and Liverpool, in many ways is a acknowledgement that the Super League already exists. And, you know, it's dotted lines right now. And at some point it's going to go to straight lines because there's so much more money that the super clubs can make. And that's going to suck away from the domestic 
leagues, but I think the domestic leagues are probably going to put a salary cap on it and create a sustainable model where owners aren't spending 104% of revenues on uh, player salaries. That model don't work unless you get uh, a an owner that that is infatuated with the idea that we can become the next big team. So I don't know. I, I think we need to kind of acknowledge a spade as a spade, or we need to put a salary cap in there. Um, I am a big fan of of parity, and you know there have been six teams that have won the Premier League, two teams that have won La Liga, one team that is that has won in Italy for the last nine years, right? And PSG hasn't been in that position. I'm I'm tired of watching these top five guys basically play against speed bumps and wait for a banana slip. And that may be determined who is second place or, or champions league or Europa. So, as a football romantic, I really hate the idea of a super league. I love that they have their domestic competitions. I love that there's the 100 plus year history that ties into each competition. Um, you know, player records against various opponents, league records. I love that. And you know what? The Champions League is enough for me. I don't need Real Madrid against Barcelona one week, Manchester United the next, Bayern. I'm okay waiting until March, April, May for those matchups. And you know what? The, the patience that that requires, that actually makes it even more intense. If I have Real Madrid against a European superpower every single week, then every week is just another week. But if I have Real Madrid against Juventus in late April in the Champions League semifinals, that's special. That's something I want to see every single time. I mean, I will move my schedule to make sure I am free right in front of the TV to see that game. If that's every week, big deal. Scott, do you get excited when they play, when Real Madrid plays Uesca? or via uh, Dolid, I mean, ha- or Iche or Alaves. I mean, those are, those are Yonor. Those are check, check the internet on your smartphone when you do something else games. And at least with the, the, uh, the European games, that's something you're, it may become more commonplace, but on any given Saturday or Sunday, Real Madrid can lose. And they're not going to lose against the four teams that I meant uh, uh, that I mentioned to you, largely because those they're one or two Real Madrid players that are already the entire payroll of those three or four clubs, right? Real Madrid's payroll is larger than all four of those clubs' payrolls combined. I mean, it's already it's it's a farce. It's the Super League is already there. You're just not calling it there. And what's done it in? frankly, in La Liga was Franco's patronage, right? Barca's money, right? They got out ahead. While as yet all the other leagues, you've got Russian oligarchs, you've got Middle Eastern oligarchs, or you've got Americans oligarchs that are basically creating the Super League. The cat is already out of the bag. We've just done an entire podcast on Upsets in La Liga. I did not expect Cadiz to beat Real Madrid, but and, and, right, and, I, and I didn't either. But how many more times? How many more times? How many games did did they? 
Real Madrid lose last Chris, year? Chris, we, we've talked about this off air too, but so what do we – these are some great points both sides, both you guys are bringing up here. What do we say to a team like Leicester City who goes and wins the Premier League if there is this Super League? If there was a Super League, they wouldn't have even have had that chance to have the greatest upset in football or sporting, in my opinion, history. Because they did it consistently over, what, eight months? Like, that's ridiculous. Something like that cannot happen anymore. How do you have the small teams? Are they just going to dilute and the dreams are all done for those kids? They can't, they can't play anymore at a competitive level because – finances go out the window for all the smaller clubs i would argue all these big clubs you know make the leagues you know they make the country more unified in terms of in terms of playing i don't know if there's just a super league as you were saying it's just dilute. okay let me get this straight you're saying bars barcelona is making the country more unified even though they have a separate division in terms of playing no in terms of playing because if i'm huesca and i play the mighty barcelona who has Lionel Messi, and if, even if I'm Hitafe, I'm Hitafe. We play the mighty Barcelona, and one of my kids on one of my kids makes the Hitafe youth team. He finally makes it on the first team. He's an 18 year old. He he makes that team, and they beat the mighty Barcelona. You're telling me that's not good for the community. That's not good for a smaller club. You know that's not good. It's that's awesome, a Scott. Story. I mean, it's 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 awesome, Alex. But here's the thing: is that the three times that Real Madrid lost last season, there were 35 other times where they won and they spanked Hatafe and everybody else. True. So, so it's like, why do you want to have the one in 10? Uh, but that's why option? you have the Champions League. For, so for me, what does that mean? Does that mean the Champions League? The Champions League is done, right? The Champions League is the greatest accomplishment in soccer, apart from maybe the winning the World Cup. And some players argue the Champions League is even better than winning the World Cup. Although I think very few. But you know still, what I don't think what I don't like about the Champions League is you, you've got single, single elimination potentially too early, right? Why can't they play three or four games no uh, or five matches, right? No why, why can't we have an extension of a season where we see Liverpool was the best team last year the year before they happen to be best informed during the Champions League, right? Those are why not why not have all of that and why not why to me false hopes are so much more dangerous than than saying, Oh yeah, we can beat oh look at Cadiz, they won the one time. So yeah, maybe two other teams do that against Real Madrid. And and you've got all these chumps, right, that think that they, they can win. I don't want false hopes. I want a legit chance where Cadiz has got just as much money as all the other teams, right, in terms of a salary cap. And in any given season or year, they could win it all, right? That's, and maybe that's the American in me, but I want everybody to have an equal chance to win. And right now, there are no equal chances in La Liga or EPL or City or any top-level football at this point. I mean, from my perspective, I want to preserve the domestic competitions, you know, because of the history there, because of the significance of playing the villains. And that can That's stay. What Sorry, it's, and that it's can part stay. of the narrative. You're playing the villain, trying to knock them off. If, could, if Bar- Real Madrid does not win this Champions League or this La Liga season, 
and they lose by one point, Cadiz can be like, we did that. We we knocked them off. We helped Barcelona or Atletico Sevilla win the uh, La Liga. But the other thing... We were the roadkill that helped the other champions beat this champion. That's what you're... That's the argument you're making for me. You know, in... uh, Even in... Major League Baseball. No, actually, you know that's a bad example. There's a uh, no salary cap there. Even in basketball, the NBA, where there's a hard salary cap, you still have those teams that are notoriously always at the bottom. And you know that's that's just the way the league's going to be. Once you have a superstar in those leagues, they attract more superstars, and then you build a dynasty, and that dynasty sticks around for X number. Okay, now you're losing me even more, Scott. All right, we've already lost Ronaldo in the league. We're going to lose Messi pretty soon, right? Who are this? Remind me who the superstars are in La Liga anymore that aren't in the Premier League or at, at PSG, right? Oh, uh, so next year I'm thinking in Holland for sure. Who? Mbappe in Holland. I mean, okay. If, if you think Mbappe is going to come here, and maybe he will, he will. Let's hope he does, because I'm cheering for the league on it. Already turned down but the. PSG I got to tell you, the Manchester teams—they got a lot bigger budget. We're going to see what happens in that run. But I worry about La Liga. If you lose the superstars, what's going to happen? Right. I worry about City. Ah, if they lose Ronaldo. I mean, I love Lukaku. Yeah, I got a, I got a, a, a crush on him, a, a soccer crush on him, but he can't carry the league by himself, right? And Zlatan, maybe a year or so, but he can't carry that league anymore. I just, I feel like we're we're losing out. Let's get the Super League. Let's let those guys be who they are, and then let's keep those hundred year traditions and create some parity where it's going to be fun to watch the league, the domestic leagues. How many times has the EPL won the Premier League or the, sorry, the Champions League in the past decade? Uh, Scott, I agree with you on that point, but let's have this conversation in five years, right? I mean, I think things are going to change because the, the Galactico model, the Galactico model won't work anymore. You're going to have to have analytics and you're going to have to have money, right? And you can't just spend like drunken sailors like Barca and Real Madrid's model and Man U's model has been. That don't work anymore. I agree. I agree. But this is where I think if they come up with some kind of a, a, a luxury tax like the NBA has, that does take some of that money from the bigger teams and funnel it down to the smaller teams. So you do have a little more parity. And I'm okay with that. You know, if there are three or four teams who can make the each season interesting, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Right. But if you're Real Madrid or Barcelona, do you want to put a salary cap on now? Because you are already making so much money hand over fist. There's no incentive for you to do that. Right. But the Super League, if it's like, hey, we're going to 2x your income and you're going to play a third fewer games. Are you okay with that? What do you think the owners are going to say? Oh, I have no doubt that the owners are totally on board with this. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't put uh, the tradition of the game in their hands. Exactly. I think that's the biggest point is financially, this might make the most sense for all the top dogs. And at the end of the day, those top dogs have a lot of influence, like you were saying, Chris. There's definitely some really great points and pros and cons on both sides. Maybe the solution is just to have Real Madrid and Barcelona play 28 games in a season against each other and battle it out and see who 
comes out on top. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. So let's preview the one game, the one pleasurable game that we have coming up. El Clasico, FC Barcelona against Real Madrid. Guys, we've talked a lot about how the teams look in terms of their front three, with Casemiro being out. You know, we got Messi. We got who is the superstar on Real Madrid right now? I'm not so sure. We got Zidane against Messi, maybe. But Ramos might be out, depending on what happens. We'll see there. But who do we favor here? I'm going with Barcelona. I mean, naturally, I'm going Real Madrid. <laughs> so, but this uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in this matchup. It, this one really could go either way. Um, you know, when they played back in what, March, I felt really good about Real Madrid's chances. I'm much less confident coming into this one. Uh, we haven't really seen either side uh, have that fluidity that they had last season. And there's still just gaping holes in both lines. I, I don't think either manager has found his ideal starting 11. So in, maybe that's just early season rotation to get them ready for this, this big burst of games with Champions League now in play. But, yeah, lots of question marks in this matchup. Yeah, I guess my take on this game is it's going to be a 2-1 outcome. I just don't know what the 2-1 who's going to have the two and who's going to have the one, right? I don't, uh, you know, they're calling it pretty even. They're, I know the, the sports books are calling the over-under on 2.5. It's dead even either way. They don't have an opinion on it. Uh, and they've got actually Barcelona as a, um, a mild favorite. So, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting to me that they've got Barca as, as the favorite here. And, Right. I guess it's it's a home game for Barca, is is maybe that's what, what they're making the call. So, sorry guys, we're gonna have to keep it a dead tie. I, I, all I know is gonna be two one. I don't know who's gonna win it. It's that right. close. Based off what's happening right now in Champions League, Barcelona is up three one currently in the eighty first minute against Fidesin Vados. Um, it looks like it was Trincao, Coutinho, Ansufati, and Messi up top. If this game goes like it's supposed to go and with 10 minutes left, I actually think that's going to be the exact lineup that plays against Real Madrid. Um, Coutinho playing more in that number 10 role with Messi as a false nine. Although I know, Scott, we spoke about Messi being as that number 10 role, you know, completely and just staying there, not as a false nine. I do think Messi against Real Madrid you know, as a false nine works better than as a false nine against Getafe. Why? Because because Real Madrid is not afraid of Barcelona and they're not just going to sit back and, and, you know, do this crazy low block. You know, there's going to be times where Messi drags out, I think it will be Militao and, and Varane, who have, you know, Varane obviously has a, a lot of experience playing against him. And I think that will provide, um, you know, a lot of space for for Fati and Trincao, you know, to stay isolated out wide and both to come inside if it's, is it going to be Nacho playing in that right back position? I personally hope so based on his last game. He is going to have to be a stay-at-home defender like you mentioned, not like he was in the past game because going up against Fati 1v1 is, is no small task. Um, my biggest question is who's in the midfield? 
for Barcelona, and who's in the midfield for Real Madrid. Cruz is for sure. I do think he'll end up playing Modric. Now, for me, who's that third midfielder for Real Madrid? And I do think for Barcelona, he's going to go with Frankie de Jong, that's for sure. Who's going to be that other one? Is it Pjanic because he just played in this Champions League game? Or is it going to be Busquets? That is the, the big uncertainty for me. Scott, maybe you can shed some light there. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think um, you'll see Busquets in the starting lineup. They've got to have some kind of a rotation with both of those guys on the wrong side of 30. So, yeah, expect Busquets back in the starting lineup. For Real Madrid, I mean, if this past weekend taught us anything, it's that Casemiro has to be in the lineup. He has to be the first person on that team sheet. So I think Cruz works well with him in the midfield. And then, you know, it's really just a matter of, you know, what do they want to accomplish on that right side of the pitch? You know, if Nacho does play, how do you get any kind of attacking threat from that right side? And so, you know, maybe that's where Valverde comes onto the, in, or into the starting lineup. You know, play him with maybe a guy like Rodrigo up top. I think that gives them that little bit of an edge on that right-hand side that's really been lacking so far this season. You know, the other thing is Zidane could totally throw us for a loop and go 4-4-2 with the diamond midfield and, you know, have Benzema and Jovic up top with Isco underneath. So he, he's shown a little bit of flexibility this, this season. Maybe that's where he's gone wrong a little bit. Uh, you know, in testing the waters with these various formations, various combinations, maybe that has taken away from the team's performance. But, you know, then again, this early in the season, why not take a chance? So, yeah, I think for me, figuring out that right-hand side has to be the priority. Need a little bit of defensive security, but they also need something, something in the attack just from that right-hand side because that's really so far this year. Alex, are there any particular matchups kind of individual matchups that you think we need to be paying attention to in this, in the Clásico? With Barcelona center backs as of late, it's always Benzema, uh, Langley, and, and PK. Those are, you know, those are ones that I'm always excited to watch because I really respect Benzema as a number nine. I think he's like the complete number nine. He can do anything, so he's so hard to play against. I don't think... PK and Langley are in great form. I think that's a big line, a big uh, matchup to look out for. And I've already mentioned, obviously, the Varane-Messi Varane one, although I don't think it's going to be um, more Varane-Messi. It might be Casemiro-Messi because of how much Messi you know, drags back. Honestly, usually it's Messi against everyone. He goes and gets his hacks from everyone. But Ansu Fati versus Nacho, if it is Nacho again, I think that's one that could change the game completely. Now on the other end, if Scott, if Rodrigo plays and he plays on the right against a guy like Sergino Dest, that's a really big test. That's like the battle of very quick, agile, 1v1 players. I think that's really exciting to watch as well. And then finally, Sergio Roberto um, on that right back spot. Vinicius, right, Scott? I think it'll be Vinicius coming down that left-handed side who's always such a handful. Um, Roberto will be well aware of him. And, um, yeah, 
Vinicius does a good job always of of going at players one v one. It's just that final product that he still is just not allowing him to come to the next level. But uh, yeah, def I mean, all over the pitch, there's just so many amazing matchups that you know a lot of young players and obviously older players and analysts like us can learn from. So it's it's very exciting. We've got a lot of awesome football to look out for. Um, these are exciting times. European Super League might be coming up, right, Chris? <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Any other points you guys want to make about the matchup? No, I, I think uh, the prevailing theme that I'm, I'm hearing is uh, Messi, M-E-S-S-Y, in all the leagues. There's just shortened preseason, injuries, COVID, just – it's going to be really upside down and that's going to make hopefully for a really enjoyable uh, league watching and hopefully some enjoyable champions league as well. So I'm actually really excited about this and that, that the wheels are off the bus a little bit, or at least one wheel for, for the, the Real Madrid's and the Barca's of the world. So then we kind of see where the new heroes come and that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Fantastic. Yeah, just because uh, uh, I actually meant to mention this earlier, but my player of the week in all this chaos, Alan Young for Hetafe, somehow he managed eight fouls and stayed on the pitch. And not only that, <laughs> he played the pass that set up the penalty kick. So Alan Young, player of the week, fantastic work, bud. I'm going to talk about go to the week, and it's just because this just happened. But PK getting a red card uh, in this Champions League game, so he's not going to be featured against Juve. I don't know how an experienced center back lets that happen. But um, that's the sort of fray that's going to make this season so interesting, guys. Well, I'll have to take a look at that red card. Uh, well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Total Football Analysis La Liga podcast. A big thank you to Chris and Scott for your fantastic insights today. As always, we would like to thank Total Football Analysis Solutions. Go check the website www.totalfootballanalysis.com. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. See you next week and hasta luego. Mm -hmm.